Welcome back to the Running on Purpose podcast. My name is Steve, and I'm your host. This week, I want to do something a little bit different. I know I've been promising you a, an episode on the movement practice. I'd already recorded one, but it didn't actually turn out the way I liked. And I keep thinking that I can do it better, and I'm putting a little bit of pressure on myself. So I'm going to release that next week. And this week, I'm going to do something unusual. I'm reviving the Endorphin Book Club. This was a short-lived book, running book club, that I did. Actually, I had two different versions of it. But uh, this time, what I'd like to do is read to you an essay or an article written by someone I consider to be the best running writer that we've ever had. His name is Kenny Moore. Kenny Moore passed away last summer, summer 2022. And this book, this essay I want to read you, it's an article. It's pretty short, actually, so this won't be too long an episode. But it's in his book called Best Efforts, which I think is uh, his one of the best running books you'll ever find anywhere. Now, it's out of print. It's really hard to find. I think copies are running somewhere around the $100 mark, especially for the pretty cool cover that's going to be the cover art on this episode, which is pretty iconic and pretty cool, I think. This book of essays came out in 1982. Um, my copy is a, a first edition. And it, it's basically filled with material that much of it was written in. He, he, had a, he was consistently a, a writer for Sports Illustrated. And if you go to the Sports Illustrated vault or just do a Google search for Kenny Moore uh, Sports Illustrated, you can find many of his incredible writings on running, but also on other topics. He was a great sports journalist, but he's known best, in my opinion, for being a writer. You may know him for being the author of Bowerman, the book that was pretty famous about 10 years ago and many, many people read. He also, you may know him, he probably won't be famous for this, but he uh, was the screenwriter for a, a running movie from the 80s called, I think, Personal Record or something like that. Uh, it's pretty pretty cheesy, actually, but um, it was an attempt in those years of running's heyday and the, the the big interest that there was in the 70s and the 80s and the running boom for running, to have a running movie, and he wrote that. But this particular essay, the one that I want to read for you, and this may be a recurring theme. It may be something I do consistently. I'm not actually sure of the legality of it. This book is out of print. I have not reached out to his wife to see who owns the rights to it. Um, but if you, f if someone is hearing this and they feel like this is inappropriate, then just let me know. I, I just feel like this stuff isn't going to get out there. No one's going to actually have a, an audio book for best efforts. So what I felt like would be really cool is to read one of the great essays. I remember reading this when I was a kid. One of the greatest essays ever written about a particular runner named Ron Clark. Now, Ron Clark... He's an Australian distance runner. Uh, his heyday was, I think he was at the 1956 Olympics, and then he his last race was in 1970. And this is something Kenny talks about, the last race he runs. And he had a, his, he was an incredible career during that window of time. So it's like 15, 16 year career. He set 17 records in those 15 years. 
most people will remember him for being the heavily favored athlete in the 1964 10,000 meters in Tokyo where uh, he was defeated by the American Billy Mills in really miraculous fashion. Again, be sure to check out Running Brave from the 1983, from 1983, which was a really, really great movie. It's probably, its production value is really low now, but I, I watched that movie probably a hundred times when I was a kid. I had the, the VCR and I, I wore, I wore the tape out. Um, uh, Robbie Benson plays Billy Mills and he does a pretty good job. I think Billy Mills is still with us. He's an incredible inspiration, but everyone thought for sure that Ron Clark would be the winner of that 10,000 meters. But the way that Billy came from nowhere and unheralded, nobody knew who he was. And it it really is one of the the great miracles um, or most unexpected, incredible upsets ever in the history of track and field for sure. Um, But, you know, one thing I want to highlight is that during one 44-day European tour in 1965, so the year after he was he was beat, beaten by Billy Mills, Ron Clark complete, competed 18 times, and he broke 12 world records in that window of time. It's pretty incredible. 18 races in 44 days, and he broke 12 world records during that time frame. He was the first man to break 28 minutes for the 10K, the first man to go under 13 minutes for three miles. And when he broke that 28-minute 10K barrier, he broke it by 36 seconds. He broke his own record by 36 seconds, and he ran 27.39. Um, 1965, really incredible. He absolutely revolutionized the sport. So as for his character, uh, I'm going to read this story, and I think that Kenny Moore really hits it right. And it's just unbelievably prescient and inspiring to me. So if you like this episode and it's something you want me to do more of, just shoot me an email. You can reach me at sisson at telosrunning.com. And uh, I'm excited to share this Endorphin Book Club selection for you. All right, let's jump in. But Only on Sunday, Ron Clark by Kenny Moore. In 1970, Frank Shorter and I ran an international 10,000-meter race in Oslo. Frank won. I was fifth. And a gentleman named Ron Clark was sixth, the pair of us laboring silently together for the last mile. At the award ceremony, we pushed the bone-tired Clark onto the top level. The crowd stood in tearful ovation as the Norwegian officials presented him with a pair of cross-country skis to symbolically ensure his return. This had been Ron Clark's last race. Later, I visited him in Australia to review a career as important for its philosophical integrity as for its world records. Sunday mornings, Ron Clark drives out from Melbourne past Puffing Billy and up Fern Tree Gully into the Dandenong Hills. He parks a lot near a roadside general store and waits. Other automobiles arrive with men wearing running shoes and shorts. T-shirts bear the names of nations, universities, beers. When their number reaches two dozen, the men set off, trotting comfortably along the road's grass verges. Suddenly, a runner veers into the bush and sprints away madly. The rest, Ron Clark among them, give howling chase. 
The trail, rich with these loose rocks and tree roots, is overhung with brittle eucalyptus and a huge wet ferns that Ruit Clark, taller than his hurtling companions, catches squarely in the face. In half a mile, the leaders regain the road and jog, listening to the stragglers, the thump of bodies against trees. The pack reforms, gathers its strength, and begins another wrenching charge to the forest. I've been doing this since 1961, pants Clark, and I don't care if I never set foot on a track again, but I can't leave this. The run is 17 miles. The road, with Australian bluntness, goes right at its hills, two and three mile stretches of rough gravel without a curve or dip or chance to rest. On the summits, everyone wheezes and looks vaguely ill. This is the best, says Clark, at the base of a, thir- of a mile of 30 degree pitch. You know, Dave Power, the bronze medalist from Rome, he had to walk here. When Clark has willed himself up and some color has returned, his voice is touched with reverence. Such a hill. A brutal, magnificent hill. Between 1963 and his retirement in 1970, Ron Clark took part in 313 races over distances of a half mile to a marathon and won 202 of them. Along the way, he broke 17 world records. Yet Ron Clark did not win an Olympic or British Commonwealth Games gold medal, and upon that omission, he has been sternly judged. Derek Clayton, once the world's best marathoner, trained with him. I know Clarky better than he knows himself. No emotions. The man couldn't lift himself in the important competitions. A machine. The Olympics or a club race. It was all the same for him. He was gifted physically. His records prove that, said Coach Percy Surdy, who attempted to advise Clark in his early career. But he had no real mental drive. When he came up against men with spirit, he let them beat him. In Australia, Clark has, has in fact, become a symbol of promise unfulfilled, of excellence somehow gone to waste. Ron Clark, asks the cabbie or the girl who brings you the better, your bitter, isn't he the bloke who never won anything? The kids are in bed. Ron and Helen Clark, the latter a composed, capable woman of the, with a soothing, mellifluous voice, invite friends over for an evening swim. After a few laps in the frigid little pool, Ron climbs into one of the rocky ledges that make up the backyard. His Afghan hound, Shendi, attacks him with love. Since his retirement from racing, Clark has reversed the aging process. The graying crew cut has given way to thick black curls that frame a face less drawn, less lined, than the one that agonized through all those miles. I apologize for the mess this place is in, he says. Barbells and pulleys and setup boards that once dominated the family room are being moved outside, displaced by a billiard table and a bar. I've been too busy to see to things properly. He is general manager of Australia's largest sports shoe company, has three corporations to receive royalties from endorsements and development from health and fitness products, a position on Australian's film censorship board of review, and a newspaper column. Despite the assertions of his countrymen that his racing character was flawed, Clark, relaxing in the warm December night wind, is clearly not freighted with remorse. That's over, he says. The races blur. My God, most of the time it seems as if the competitive runner was another person. Reminded of the 10,000 meters he won in the 1969 U.S. versus USSR British Commonwealth meet in Los Angeles, Clark has to consult the log of his travels to satisfy himself that he had run in the Coliseum at all that year. I did not win the Olympic gold medal, he says, and that has given rise to the idiotic idea that I was no good in real competition. My only contention, and I'm leaning over backwards to be fair, 
is that because of the altitude at Mexico City, I had no chance against the Africans, and therefore the critics' point that I was incapable of winning remains unproved. Personally, I have no doubt at all that I was the best 10,000-meter runner in the world in 1968. At sea level, I would have won easily. With some finality, he dives back into the pool. Clark seems justified. In Europe, before Mexico at the Mexico Games, he defeated 10,000-meter champion Neftali Temu of Kenya and 5,000 gold and silver medalist Mohamed Gamudi of Tunisia and Kip Kano of Kenya by margins that were comparable to those by which they beat him at the Games. But there were other chances for gold. In the 1964 Olympic 10,000, Clark led for most of the race and was outkicked by Billy Mills of the United States and Gamudi. In the 1966 Commonwealth Six Mile in Kingston, Jamaica, Clark led most of the race and was beaten by Temu. At the 1970 Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, Clark was still in front down the last back straight, but was outkicked by Scotland's Lackey Stewart. These races give him the reputation for crumbling under pressure. And even though they came following injuries or in tropical heat or during Clark's decline towards retirement, in each he was probably equal the equal to any other entrant, except for the peculiar nature of his running. He might have won them all. Ron Clark defied the one edict that, in contests among equals, approaches law. The pace setter never wins. Front running has an element about it of keeping one's nerve familiar to those who move in high, unprotected places. The leader competes against footsteps, specters. He struggles to escape the clinging pack at the same time he fights down his own cowardice. There is fear, says Clark. I usually didn't think I'd be able to finish until I got to the last lap. The follower has only to match the leader's pace. He enjoys a comparative calm in which he can relax and conserve his emotional energy for a final, unanswerable assault. Given these realities, few men running at the head of at the head of a pack, can avoid a feeling of sacrifice. Steve P. Fontaine, explaining the savagery of his bursts to break contact with his followers, he said, I hate to have people back there sucking on me. Ron Clark was a frontrunner, yet not in the classic mold of an athlete who has no finishing kick and therefore must set a hard pace out of desperation. On those rare occasions when Clark followed instead of led, he outsprinted such fast finishers as Kano and the West Germans Harold Norputh. Shunning expediency, Ron Clark was a front-runner out of principle. He accepted each of his races as a complete test, an obligation to run himself blind. Over a late dinner of salad, a lean steak, and five glasses of chartreuse vigorade, he makes his case. The single most horrible thing that can happen to a runner is to be beaten in the stretch when he's still fresh. No matter who I was racing or what the circumstances, I tried to force myself to the limit over the whole distance. It makes me sick to see a superior runner wait behind the field until 200 meters to go and then sprint away. That is immoral. It's both an insult to the other runners and a denigration of his own ability. So Clark took the lead in Tokyo and Kingston and even in Mexico City with the understanding that doing so was likely his ruin. If you're the world record holder, as I was, and nobody else will set the pace and make it a real race of it, and it's your style to have a demanding pace, then you have to do it yourself. If that is going to diminish your chances of winning, well, you still have to do it. And I was very conscious of that pressure. Perhaps one should resist it. I couldn't. Although he calls it his style, or impatience, Clark's flaw was a driving moral imperative to go flat out, to impose an order on each race, 
and to make sure the winner was the fastest, toughest competitor. I loved testing myself more than I feared being beaten, he says. And front running is the ultimate test. You need a total, irrevocable commitment to see the race through to the end, or it cannot justify your effort. Clark takes a text from his bookcase. Any athlete who thinks he suffers ought to read this. The book is Heinrich Herrer's The White Spider, an account of the climbing of the north face of Eiger in Switzerland, of the men who died attempting it, and of those who finally succeeded. In it, one finds a passage Clark has underlined. There is nothing new to be said about the behavior of men in exceptional circumstances of danger or crisis. I would not find better words than those used by the Athenian Menander. A man's nature and his way of life are his fate, and that which he calls his fate is but his disposition. Ron Clark's fatal disposition took shape early. His older brother Jack was a long, outstanding, professional Australian rules football player. My only consolation, says Ron, and the only one I could have since he beat me at everything was the satisfaction of trying my hardest. When he began running competitively, Clark was moved by the examples of two men, Emil Zatopek and John Landy, both inexhaustible trainers, front runners, and gentlemen. Zatopek, the only man ever to win the 5,000, 10,000, and marathon in one Olympics, was the more distant idol. The Czech ran as if tortured by internal demons. He seemed a sign, a proof, that if athletes chose to force themselves through the pain and the doubt, there could be no limit to human performance. Landy, the second four-minute miler, helped plan Clark's early training. His races, as did Clark's later, often demonstrated a kind of noble perversity. Though he recognized that his best chance to win the 1954 mile of the century against Roger Bannister lay in upsetting the Britain's weight-and-kick strategy by sitting back himself, Landy led from the gun. The race has been the object of much attention, and he felt obliged to ensure a fast time. Otherwise, the sport might have suffered. Bannister outkicked him. In the 1956 Australian National Championship mile, Clark, then 19, fell during the third lap. Landy bounded over him and, thinking he had spiked him in the head, stopped, came back, and helped him up. Once assured of Clark's safety, Landy went after the field, now 60 yards ahead. He dove into the lead with 10 yards to go and won in 4.04.2. In that same year, Clark set a World Junior mile record of 4.06.8. Thereafter, because of chronic sinus infection and the demands of business and family, he fell away from running. In 1961, through the urging of a neighbor, former Olympian Les Perry, he began training again. This five-year hiatus, which has no parallel in the career of any other world-class runner, seems a key to Clark's determination to run on his own terms. It was a hobby when I came back to it, and although I was not totally involved in each of my races, my whole life did not hang on the result. I could afford to take a few chances. Clark then had and has today strong views on the relative importance of amateur sport and earning a living. I just read somewhere of Jim Ryan's financial sacrifices for his running. Jim was wrong. If you have had that conflict, there is only one way to resolve it. You shouldn't run. Clark's confirmation in his ethic came when he began to break records. I've never felt more depressed or more disappointed than in the days following my first world record. I was down, completely adrift. I realized that the excitement had been in the challenge of the training and in the race itself. 
The competition is what drew me on, the actual testing, not the hope of good results, because the best of all possible results, a world record, made me miserable. He understands the strangeness of this remark, and he turns to Helen, across whose lap he's now sprawled for collaboration. Do you remember how bad it was? Yes, she says softly, and everyone else so happy. For years, Clark scoured the world for tough races. I had a need, almost like a gambler's compulsion, to test myself against the best. It didn't matter that he had raced hard the day before or that the local champion was lying in wait or that the distance was not his best. In 1965, to have a 10,000 put on the program, Clark had to promise an Oslo meat promoter not only that he would break the world record in the event, but that it would come back the next day in in the featured 3,000-meter race against fresh Olympic champion Mills. He had set his his world record, one that stood for seven years, and won the short race as well, but neither was in the Olympics. Clark changed his basic tactic in the last years of his career. He devised one that added to his suffering, a full-bore sprint away from the field with a mile or more to run. It increased the challenge, but in a way it was refreshing. I knew I could make it, though. So instead of dreading those footsteps behind me, I wanted them to stay there because whoever was making them was killing himself. If the footsteps were not there and Clark had broken contact in this way, he was never beaten. He tried to sprint away in Mexico City during the 10,000-meter race with a kilometer to go, but he could not escape the altitude natives who swarmed past him on the last lap. Clark finished sixth, three steps past the line. For the only time in his career, he lost consciousness. When he awoke, a few minutes later, an oxygen mask was pressed over his face. The Australian physician attending him was cursing at the IOC for having permitted the games at that altitude. Oh, God, he railed. Look what the bastards have done. I wanted to tell him it was all right, recalls Clark, but I couldn't. My tongue was so swollen it filled my mouth. I couldn't speak for two hours. The Belmer newspapers shouted, Clark fails again. Ron and Helen Clark are dining at a friend's Melbourne beef house. The friend is not much in evidence, but a hostess keeps fluttering by, demanding to be told how she can serve. Well, I want a very simple salad, says Clark. Just lettuce and tomatoes, no dressing, no croutons, no frills. Derek Clayton had been invited. He claimed he had another engagement, said Clark. Then I told him I was paying, but it was too late. The salad is placed before him with parsley and sculptured radishes. Clark sighs and picks out the offending vegetables. Only very gently does he try to make the nature of his running understood to others with him, perhaps reasoning that a world that cannot hold parsley is not ripe for a philosophy of sport any more complicated than the winner takes all. It's been upsetting that people have seen my attitude not as a recklessness but weakness, he said. The Australian behavior toward losers is far from healthy. If youngsters are taught that losing is a disgrace and they are not sure if they can win, they will be reluctant to even try, and not trying is the real disgrace. The chorus, whenever Ron Clark is consigned to insignificance, is, whoever remembers second place. But that is the gulf between spectators, who seem to believe that runners are drawn to compete only in order to make themselves immortal, and amateur athletes, who are private men doing what they do for myriad private reasons. Among distance runners, who understand something of what Clark attempted, will be found his most thoughtful judges. In 1966, Clark spent a week in Prague with Zadopek, who at the time was not yet cast in official disgrace for having supported the liberal Dubacek government. 
Clark retains the whole of that visit in softly gilded memory. He speaks of his heroes, boyhood hero's grace, his standing in the eyes of his countrymen, his unabated fitness and energy. As Clark departed, Zadopek accompanied him through the customs and, in violation of regulations, onto the plane itself. He, took, he stood by me and then slipped a little box into my pocket. He seemed embarrassed and clearly didn't want anyone to see what he'd done. For a moment, I wondered if I was smuggling for him. Later, when the plane was in the air, I unwrapped it. The memento that dropped into his palm inscribed, To Ron Clark, July 19, 1966, was Zadopek's Olympic gold medal from that 10,000 meters in Helsinki. Not out of friendship, Zadopek had whispered to Clark as he turned to go, but because you deserve it. February 1973. So I hope you enjoyed this reading, the first of its kind. If you did, I'd love to hear from you. If you didn't, I'd love to hear from you. Reach out to me at sisson at telosrunning.com. I'll leave you with a quote from that article that I just read. This is from Ron Clark. I love testing myself more than I feared being beaten. And front running is the ultimate test. You need a total, irrevocable commitment to see the race through to its end, or it cannot justify your effort. Godspeed, my friends. Godspeed.